Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today is day 60 of Occupy Wall Street. And to begin with, I would like to thank the following fellow saloners who have either purchased a copy of my Pay What You Can novel, The Genesis Generation, or who have made a direct donation to the salon to help offset some of our expenses here. And these great people are Kyle G., Andrew M., David F., Jeff E., Patrick G., Arwin O., and Eric I. And I really appreciate all of your help, uh, particularly since uh, my support of the Occupy movement seems to be driving some of our fellow saloners away. Besides seeing a number of friends uh, go down on Facebook, uh, (laughs) I've also received some ugly email, and uh, I'll read one of those uh, after we hear today's talk by uh, Robert Anton Wilson. And uh, so your continuing support means a lot to me, and uh, thank you all ever so much. Now, before we get into today's program, I do have one announcement that I'd like to make, and it comes from Emil L., who says in part, Inspired by your R.A. Wilson podcast, I remembered that there was a film where he appears. This one, and he sent the link that I'll add to the program notes here. This one, but I can't find any copy on the net, nor one to purchase, uh, nor a place to rent it. So I thought that you, as a center point of so many information threads, could help me somehow. By the way, big fan of your podcast and heard the Genesis Generation at least four times. So uh, keep on doing. (laughs) Four times, that's quite a bit, so I appreciate that. And the name of this this, uh, video, it's a documentary by the way, it's titled Children of the Revolution, Tune Back In. And it looks like it was uh, uh, released in 2005. Uh, with Billy Ayers, Ram Dass, uh, Zach De La Rocha, and Bernadine Dorn, among others. So, if you know where Emil can find a copy, it would be nice of you to uh, post that information in the program notes for today's podcast, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And now, for today's program, I'm going to play the first half of a Robert Anton Wilson talk that was given without notes at a bookstore in Santa Cruz, uh, Santa Cruz, California, that is, in 1990, uh, 21 years ago. Uh, The appearance uh, was organized and recorded by our latest salon benefactor, Joe Metheny, and uh, he, along with the Original Falcon Press, uh, which you can find, by the way, at originalfalcon.com, Uh, Well, they've given me permission to play these Bob Wilson recordings, even though they are uh, currently uh, selling them online as well. And uh, today's talk is one that you may also want to purchase, uh, particularly if you're a big Bob Wilson fan, since it's a video DVD that uh, really shows him at the top of his form and in a very casual setting. You know, it's uh, quite fun to actually watch one of his performances that he does uh, completely without notes. And unless I miss my guess, it's uh, also going to be fun to uh, listen to right now. So uh, let's, uh, let's join the one and only Robert Anton Wilson, introduced by Joe Metheny. Okay, uh, I'd like to thank everybody for showing up tonight. Welcome to Avalon Bookstore. Uh, we couldn't convince Groucho Marx that he wasn't dead, so instead we have Dr. Robert Anton Wilson. (laughs) 
broadest and most inter interesting introductions I ever had. Uh, am, I, am I the only one who noticed that, that one of the last things Ronald Reagan did before leaving the presidency was to have an operation on his asshole? Uh, one of the first things uh, George Bush did uh, on entering the presidency was to have an operation on his middle finger. <laughs> The only one who imagines a connection there. <laughs> it's uh, for a man my age, and there are very few. Most men my age are dead already, as Casey Stengel once said. Uh, for a man my age, it's uh, profoundly embarrassing that the president and vice president remain Bush and Quail. Uh, when, I, when I was growing up, uh, Quail in Brooklyn, uh, when I was reaching puberty, Quail had only one meaning. It meant vagina. And uh, I didn't find out it also meant a bird until I was about 19. Uh, adolescence in Brooklyn in the 1940s, before the sexual revolution, before the 60s, before the Kinsey reports were published, and everybody found out, gee, I'm not the only one who does that. Back in the dark ages, boys around the cusp of puberty would gather in the boys' room at the school and discuss bush and quail. Have you have actually seen the bush? Yeah, my girl let me see a bush, but only quick for a minute, like, you know, I got two fingers in my girl's quail. And I grew up with that. I bush and quail, bush and quail. You're terrified that the grown-ups will find out you're thinking about sex, much less talking about it, and doing anything about it was absolutely out of the question. So this is all, I, I can say penis and vagina, and I'm okay. I can say prick and cunt, and I'm okay. But uh, the minute I get to quail, I'm, I'm 13 years old, and I'm terrified that uh, my parents are going to find out what I'm talking about with the other boys. And now every day I pick up the newspapers, and there it is, bush and quail, bush and quail. What are they doing to me? The Republican Party is out to destroy what's left of my sanity. And uh, you've all heard of the Church of the Subgenius, I trust. And you know, the secret, you know the secret phrase, Bob. You, you know the secret of power. What's the secret of power? Slack. Uh, no, no, no. Given how stupid the average guy is, statistically half the people are stupid. Right. You all know how dumb the average guy is. Well, mathematically, by definition, half of them are even dumber than that. <laughs> now, now, once you understand that, you can start your own religion and get as rich as Bob, or L. Ron Hubbard, or Rajanish. You can have 93 Rolls Royces, though, if you just keep that in mind. Half of them are even dumber than average. And as if that's not bad enough uh, for the philosopher to contemplate, I mean, if you want to make money, it's good news, but if you're a philosopher, it's bad news. On top of that, we've got an incredibly large number of people nowadays who are just plain full of shit. I mean, have you noticed that? Movie stars, they're all full of shit these days. You can get them to endorse anything. Uh, I, I heard recently, honest to God, of the Carol Hemingway show. Maybe some of you up here have heard of Carol Hemingway. It was a very good talk show. She had a woman on who gets testimonials from movie stars for various products. She's in between. She makes a good profit on it. She said, Elizabeth Taylor recently turned down a million dollars to endorse something because she thought it was a rotten product. 
I suddenly I fell in love with Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> well, I see it. I just thought she's so funny. <laughs> another Hollywood bubblehead, you know. Some acting talent, quite a bit of acting talent in some of her roles. But now I'm in love with her. This woman turned down a million dollars just on a matter of principle. And you can hardly find that these days. Uh, movie stars will endorse anything. And baseball players are even worse. You know, baseball players will get up there on television with their bare face hanging out and say, I never thought I'd like eating lepers, turds. I think they'll do anything for money. <laughs> <laughs> AIDS is good for you. I haven't been so I've never been so happy as when I got AIDS. Come and get your injection. They'll say you pay them enough money. So we get all these stupid people, and then we get all these celebrities who are full of shit. And then if you look around, you'll find out that at least thirty percent of the population are batshit crazy. Right? <laughs> well, on Santa Cruz, it's about sixty <laughs> percent. So you see, you, you got the just plain stupid. You got the ones who are full of shit, and you got the ones who are batshit crazy, and now we end up with a vice president who's all three at once. And he has to be named Quail, too. He goes down to Latin, he goes down to Latin America, he's in Brazil, he apologizes to the crowd because he can't speak Latin. He was speaking to the Negro, United Negro College Fund, and he tried to quote their slogan. And he said, it's a terrible thing to lose your mind. <laughs> I mean, it's a terrible waste to lose your mind. I mean, <laughs> well, anyhow, I'm not going to do Dan Quayle jokes. He's too easy. Besides, yes, uh, he had a great record in, uh, during the Vietnam War. Uh, as soon as the Viet Cong found out that dangerous Dan had joined the Indiana National Guard, they gave up all plans to invade Terre Haute. Most people don't realize that. What I want to know is, have all these years of Playboy centerfolds been conditioning us to accept this Bush and Quail and the White House Bush and Quail? Bush and Quail. You know the difference between Playboy, Penthouse, and Hustler? This is of no interest to the women in the audience. But, uh, I'll get to the women later. Uh, the difference between Playboy, Penthouse, and Hustler, I spent a lot of time meditating on this. <laughs> Philosophers have to think about everything, you know, even the most trivial matters. In Playboy, the women look like they want you to make love to them, right? In Penthouse, they look like they get tired waiting and they start making love to themselves. And in Hustler, they look like they're having a gynecological examination. <laughs> now you know the difference. And now you know the three types of males who buy the three different magazines. The way we have three of them. There's a lot of inferior invitations, but those are the three major ones. These are the three basic approaches to Bush and Quail. And that's why we got Bush and Quail running the country. I hope that's clear. <laughs> Uh, I'm supposed to speak tonight about the Western Hermetic tradition. I've spoken and written so much about the Western Hermetic tradition that bores me. Uh, however, I'll say something about the Western Hermetic tradition. Uh, you know, uh, the earth is hollow, of course. Everybody here knows that. You wouldn't be in a, an occult bookstore in Santa Cruz if you didn't know the earth is hollow. February 1990, we all know that. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, one of the people who knew it was Jules Verne. Uh, that's why he wrote Journey to the Center of the Earth. 
As a matter of fact, it's in several of Jules Verne's novels. And if you get a hold of Michael Lamy's book, Jules Verne, Initiate and Initiator, you'll find out Jules Verne was a member of the Priory of Sion. You see, we're getting into the Western occult tradition after all. Now, who are the Priory of Sion? Well, according to this book, Jules Verne, Initiate and Initiator, the Priory of Sion were formed in the 1890s as a front for the Illuminati of Bavaria who decided to go underground, seal their existence, and set up a front organization to recruit people. So the Priory of Sion are the old Illuminati of Bavaria, still in business under a new name. And Jules Verne was one of their highest initiates. Hey, you're getting real heavy secret stuff tonight. This is what you paid for, I trust. And one of the major secrets of the Priory of Sion is that the Earth is hollow, contrary to what profane science thinks. The earth is hollow, and there's an opening that goes right down to the center of the earth. I ran the chateau in southern France, near the Spanish border. There's a church there. It's called the Church of Mary Magdalene. And it says over the door, this place is terrible. And if you go down to the cellar of that church and press the right brick at the right time, uh, uh, a staircase opens leading down, and you go right down to the center of the earth, which is full of superhuman beings who are immortal, who never die. They have the secret of immortality. And they are going to give it to the human race when we're ready for it. But we're not ready for it yet. But the purpose of the Priory of Sion is to get us ready for it. Okay? <laughs> you know how many Freemasons it takes to change a light bulb? <laughs> That's a craft secret. <laughs> the uh, Michael Levay's theory that the Priory of Sion are alive with immortal superhuman beings who live in the center of the hollow earth and you can get in through a uh, door in the church, the Church of Mary Magdalene in Renly Chateau that's only uh, actually, that may not be the whole truth I hate to disillusion you, but just because you buy a book in a new age bookstore doesn't mean that everything in it is true. Uh, if you buy one of my books, at least half of it's actually crazy. <laughs> I, I, I believe, uh, well, my attitude towards the readers is an absolutely sadistic one. I use the word. E. Cummings said to Ezra Bound once, you damn sadist, I can see what you're up to. You're trying to force your readers to think. Well, that is a pretty sadistic thing to do. <laughs> if you go to school, the first thing they teach you is to stop thinking. All children are born, as uh, Buckminster Fuller noticed, uh, all children are born naked, hungry, and intensely curious. And uh, as soon as they start talking, well, even before they start talking, being a parent uh, consists chiefly of following them around the house, yelling, don't put that in your mouth. Just because the oral bio-survival circuit turns on right after birth, and the first thing they want is mommy's titty. And the second thing they want is to test the rest of the world to see if it's as good as mommy's titty. So everything You know what the carpet tastes like, right? Everybody here knows what the carpet tastes like because you put it in your mouth. You know what the dirt and the flower pot tastes like? You know what everything tastes like. Because this is the first circuit of the nervous system that's activated. 
If you want to know about the other seven circuits, buy my book, Prometheus Rising. That's what I'm here for, is to sneak in subtle little plugs <laughs> for my books. Uh, as soon as they learned to talk, as, as I was saying, uh, they stopped testing everything by putting it in their mouth, and they tried to find out by wiggling their mouth. And they figure out these sounds that grown-ups might have meaning. They start asking questions. And uh, parenting then consists of saying, well, gee, I don't know. I'll go look it up in the encyclopedia. They <laughs> find the most fascinating questions. Why is the sky blue? Uh, well, gee, it's always been blue as far back as I can remember. Now, maybe it's full of orgone energy. I, I, I <laughs> Why is the sky blue? Well, it's the reflection of lakes and oceans. No, wait a minute. And, uh, and that's what, why does it rain? Well, there's uh, the excess moisture in the clouds, I think, or something like that. But then they want to know, uh, why is America here and not in Africa? Well, uh, <laughs> and uh, the function of the public school system is to put a stop to that. If we had a population... Uh, who kept the curiosity of small children. People would be going around trying to find out everything for themselves. And uh, such intense curiosity is likely to tumble the whole edifice of uh, authoritarian society. There's a bridge in Amsterdam. Well, there are a lot of bridges in Amsterdam, aren't there? Yeah. There's one particular bridge in Amsterdam. You go over it and you find yourself on E-Tunnel. And there's a great coffee house there, which has a sign in it that says, No hard drugs, please, which I love. It's, the, it's so civilized, it's so natalized, it's, it's the essence of Dutchness. No hard drugs, please. It's not quite, it reminds me of when Nancy Reagan was popularizing Just Say No, and Timothy Leary said, We can be more polite than Republicans, say no, thank you. <laughs> Please, this is a, a typical Amsterdam coffee house, which means that you can buy a hashish cigarette with your coffee, which does do a lot to add to the flavor of coffee. <laughs> and, and it does a lot for the chocolate buns, too. Uh, but no hard drugs, please. That's, uh, that's so civilized and, and Dutch. Because really, you're sitting around in one of those nice Amsterdam coffee shops with a bunch of friends drinking coffee, blowing bad. <coughs> relaxed, at peace with the world, uh, you think, uh, gee, every, every, someday the whole world will be like Amsterdam. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. And you don't want somebody in the corner or they work something they bring to shove the needle in. It lowers the whole total of these So no hard drugs, please. Uh, I love Amsterdam. But anyway, there's the bridge you cross over there. It says under the bridge, abuse of authority comes as no surprise. <laughs> One of the most profound political statements I have ever encountered. Abuse of authority comes as no surprise. And authority cannot survive question, especially authority that's based on nothing but bluff. And since governments are based principally on force and deception, Democratic governments are based chiefly on deception, other governments on force. In democratic governments, if you get too uppity, they give up on the deception and they resort to brute force again, as a lot of us found out in the 60s. Those who didn't find out in the 60s will find out in the 90s, because we're going to have a rerun of the 60s. And 
uh, so they don't want people going around asking questions. So the question is, how do you stop this natural human curiosity and this incredible intelligence that humans are born with? All humans seem born with a very high IQ compared to chimpanzees, orangutans, dogs, cats, etc. Uh, like a dog. You notice the dogs don't have any sense of time whatsoever. You know, you go out the door and you remember you forgot your wallet and you go back in the dogs. <laughs> I thought you'd never come back. I thought you'd never come back. Thank God you're back. Thank God you're back. You never didn't worry how to use the can opener. I didn't worry how to use the can opener. It's the same thing we got for two weeks. I'll never see you again. They, uh... Cats are cool. Cats. Did you ever see a cat walk right into a glass uh, French door? You know, a cat will walk right into a blanket. And they won't admit they were surprised. So whole, their whole career depends on seeming smart for dogs. Beings <laughs> feel inferior. The whole cat stick. Just look how imperturbable I am. Look how cool and serene. You want to know Buddhism, man? <laughs> so a cat walks into the glass, bang, turns around. I meant that, I intended that. I don't want people to think stupid. I know what I'm doing. You follow the cat, you see it's hiding behind the couch going, <laughs> Mustn't rip off too much of George Carlin's material. <laughs> oh, we'll never get this on the radio. <laughs> so, public schools were founded, and uh, human IQ began decreasing immediately. There were actually studies done, quoted in Paul Goodman's book, Growing Up Absurd. Paul Goodman, Growing Up Absurd. Just so you don't think I'm making this up. There actually been studies done in many schools in, in uh, the big cities where IQ immeasurably decreases from the entering of grammar school to the graduation from high school. The longer they're there, the dumber they get. And uh, uh, some people think that's an accident or an oversight or a mistake. But that is the function of the public school. The function of the public schools is to stop thinking. The idea is to teach people the citizenry level of intelligence. They want us to go back before the primate level. I see a few puzzled frowns. Citizen comes from the Latin. <laughs> it means uh, to repeat like a parrot. Uh, Citizenism is the habit of repeating whatever you hear. All brainwashing movements are based on getting people to repeat things together. Like sig heil, sig heil, sig heil, or uh, there's a right-wing nut on the radio down in L.A. named Wally something. Or I can't even remember his Wally last name. Wally George. I can't remember his last name. I, you turn him on, and the first thing you hear, he's got this uh, record which simulates a live audience. And he made this damn record himself. You know, and it's, like, it's a whole bunch of voices chanting, Wally, Wally, Wally. And you suddenly realize it's the same beat. Satan Isle, Satan Isle, Satan Isle. It's the same old trick. And he comes on and starts raving, this is a Christian country. I think all the non-Christians should be thrown out of the country right now. Then he gets phone calls and insults everybody who disagrees with him. And then he plays, Wally, Wally, Wally. Jesus, I lived through this in the 30s. What's going on here? Uh, the people 
After eight years of grammar school and four years of high school, most people are ready for that sort of thing because they have been taught you never think, you never judge, you never trust your senses, you never report what you see, hear, smell, or any way surmise from the environment. You repeat what the teacher tells you. If they catch you thinking, you get a lower mark. I, uh, I one time got a C on a term paper at Brooklyn Polytechnic. It was the longest term paper in the whole class. I checked that out. It had more footnotes than any other paper. They were all accurate footnotes, all the proper apparatus of scholarship. And why did I get a C? I asked the teacher, why did I get such a low mark? These guys are all these little short papers, got A's, and I get a C for this big, long philosophical paper. He said, engineers don't write like that. You must have plagiarized it. He caught me thinking. That's the one thing they can't stand, is if they catch you thinking, they've got to find some excuse to punish you. You're not supposed to think. You're supposed to repeat what you hear. And almost all books are written on that principle. Books are written, this is the truth. I found out the truth. I will not explain it in chapter 1. I'll explain a little more in chapter 2. In chapter 3, I'll summarize chapter 1 and chapter 2 to make sure you get it. Then in chapter 4, I'll tell you a little more. Then in chapter 5, I'll repeat it a different way. Then in chapter 6, I'll tell it to you again. Now you better believe it. I've proven it. Now go and tell all your friends to buy this book so they'll learn the truth too. And people who have been through our educational system, they think they think they're thinking when they're just when they're just repeating like parrots. So I set out to sabotage the whole system by writing books that nobody can believe. <laughs> you believe one part, you take any book of mine and you believe the first thirty pages, you can't believe the next thirty pages. <laughs> If you somehow make a synthesis between them on some upper Hegelian level, this is the thesis, this is the antithesis, and somehow I'll make a synthesis up here, you find the next 30 pages throw you into an entirely different reality tunnel. By the time you get to the end, you don't know what, when I'm kidding and when I'm telling the truth. And perforce, you either have to start thinking, which is how people end up in seminars like this, or they throw the book across the room and they say, what's this son of a bitch up to? I think he should be banned. <laughs> and uh, that is my whole approach. And it horrifies me that somebody, that, that somebody might believe something I've written. Because I know how fallible I am. I've had to live with myself for 58 years, and I know what a schmuck I can be. And the thought that somebody's going to set me up as an idol and say it must be true because Robin Anton Wilson wrote it, that is such a terrifying thought <laughs> that I perforce had to invent this style of paradox and play to prevent people from thinking they're getting the truth out of my books. What you're getting out of my books is my guesses, my hunches, sometimes my prejudices. Uh, but I don't know. That. Unlike the Pope, the Ayatollah, uh, Roger Nish, Carl Sagan, and all the other prophets of all the various. Uh, I don't claim to know the truth. All I claim to know is little hunks of what I've experienced and guesses I've made. Like I guess, I guess there's a world external to my brain. I can't prove it. But it seems more reasonable because I have pretty good luck. Most of the time when I'm writing and I want a cup of coffee, I have pretty good luck. Have pretty good luck at getting up from the word processor, out the door, down the hall, into the kitchen, to the coffee machine, and bringing back coffee. 
And I don't think that would work as often as it does if there were no real world out there. <laughs> I know there are philosophers who can prove there is no real world out there, but I find it more convenient to assume that there is. I also assume I don't know anything about it, uh, except how to find the coffee. Uh, beyond that, it gets more and more perplexing and confusing. Uh, <clears throat> for instance, according to Girard de Sainte, La Rasse Fabulous, published uh, in Paris in 1973, uh, de Chion J. Louis, and my French is lousy, you don't have to tell me. I do better at German. Well, a little better. Uh, I saw a sign uh, going through uh, Bavaria in November, uh, looking out the window, I'm reading all the street signs in the towns we're going to, trying to translate them, and of course German street names are very long, and they're starting to blur in my head because some of them go by so fast I can't translate them in my German. It's not that great that I can translate it. I started seeing all these weird things. Finally, I saw one that said, Heilig der Fliegende Kinderscheißestrasse. <laughs> I said, oh, no, that can't be. But it was 10, 20 miles back by then. <laughs> I'm having it back there. Find it. Could it possibly be a Heilig der Fliegende Kinderscheißestrasse? <laughs> Those of you who speak German, explain that to me. Gerard de Seid, La Rasse Fabulous. Uh, 1973, also deals with the Priory of Zion. He explains that the works of Nostradamus do not deal with the future. Most people think Nostradamus deals with the future, which makes him a lot of puzzles because if you start studying the history of interpretations of Nostradamus, you find everything in Nostradamus has been interpreted a different way every century. There are quatrains in there that some people thought referred to Napoleon. Then later on, they decided they referred to Bismarck. Then later on, they decided they, re no, they decided they referred to Kaiser Wilhelm. Later, it was Winston Churchill or Adolf Hitler. And uh, then it was Ronald Reagan. And uh, they were all highly ambitious. Uh, a couple of months ago, had an earthquake here. Uh, before your earthquake, there was a big earthquake panic in Los Angeles because some who let out that he had deciphered one of these mysterious verses of Nostradamus, and it said everybody in Los Angeles was going to get dumped in the Pacific Ocean, going to get shaken like martinis, and then dumped <laughs> in the Pacific Ocean on such and such a day. And a lot of people actually left Los Angeles. I, I read this quatrain from Nostradamus, and it seemed to me it could refer to any city any day in any natural calamity. It wasn't even necessarily an earthquake. It could have referred to a cyclone in Miami. But people got terrorized and fled to Los Angeles, which is all to the good. It's too crowded down there anyway. <laughs> the only thing to be said for Malathion spraying is that it's going to thin out the population. <laughs> Those with the less hardy genes will die. The tough ones will survive. Uh, according to the said, uh, this... A simulation of prophecy in Nostradamus is all a big hoax. This is just to keep Nostradamus in print by attracting the superstitious and gullible. Meanwhile, as long as Nostradamus is in print, what he actually deals with is not the future, but the past. What Nostradamus' quatrains refer to is the hidden history of the past, especially the past of France. And the hidden history of the past of France 
as Gerard de Sud deciphers it from Nostradamus's plot trains, is full of the most amazing things you've never heard of before. The old royal family of France, the Merovingians, uh, I will not attempt the French pronunciation at all. I will not even make an effort at it. I'll, the English called them Merovingians, and I can pronounce that, so they're Merovingians for tonight. The French royal family up until the 8th to the 9th century, the Merovingians, disappeared entirely. Nobody knows what became of them. The last Merovingian king, Dagobert II, was murdered in the Ardennes Forest on December 23rd, 789. Why December 23rd? Oh, well. No, I don't want to get into that. Uh, uh, the, uh, why the Ardennes Forest, which is named after a bear goddess? No, we shouldn't get into that either. That'll, that'll just lead us down by, into further obscurity. The, uh, the Merovingian uh, disappeared for several hundred years from history. He was considered one of the mythical kings until somebody in the 18th century at the dawn of modern historical uh, science, when they went back to original texts and compared one text with another and started applying scientific method history, they proved Dagobert really existed. Why was he murdered and why was he obliterated from history for several hundred years? Well, according to Gerard de said, the Merovingians were systematically wiped out by the Vatican. The Vatican had to get rid of all the Merovingians because the Merovingians posed a serious threat to them. The Merovingians were descended from the tribe of Benjamin in ancient Israel and Old Testament days and their mates who were not human. The tribe of Benjamin intermarried with extraterrestrials from a planet in the system of the Syria, the star Sirius. And uh, the Orthodox Hebrews drove them out of Israel for this abominable sin of mating with extraterrestrials. They moved to Arcadia in Greece, which they named after a bear goddess. And then they moved to the Ardennes region in France, which they named after another bear goddess. That's B-E-A-R, not B-A-R-E. Uh, although Artemis, whose name means bear in Greek, was a bear goddess, and a bear goddess, if you read the Acteon legends. Uh, the, uh, the descendants of this uh, intermarriage between extraterrestrials from Sirius and ancient Israelites became the Merovingian dynasty who have superhuman powers and long hair that goes, goes down the back of their neck and down the back of their spine. And uh, the Vatican tried to wipe them all out, but a few of them still survive. And they and their allies make up the Priory of Sion, a secret society devoted to bringing the science of Sirius to Earth when we're ready for it. Now that's a little bit different than the theory in Michael LeMay's book, isn't it? Uh, that's another reason I don't claim to tell the truth. I don't know how to find out the truth. I just collect theories and guess which one of them sounds more plausible. So far, neither of these sound very plausible to me. But I like the one about Sirius, because there was a period in 1973 when I was getting communications from Sirius, or thought I was. And then in 1974, my friend Phil Dick started getting communications from Sirius, too, or thought he was. And uh, so I've always been intrigued with Sirius. Uh, I eventually decided I wasn't getting communications from Sirius. A psychic named Penny Looney told me I was channeling an ancient Chinese philosopher. 
And I started to try to make tests to see whether it was an extraterrestrial from Sirius or a Chinese philosopher. And I found either one worked. And I seemed to fit the data, just like the wave of particle models and climate mechanics. And then another psychic told me I was channeling a medieval Irish bard, which made a lot of sense to me because I've always been attracted to the medieval Irish poetry. And if a medieval Irish bard was trying to use me as a channel all my life, I would, that's why I would have gotten so involved with Irish uh, literature. Uh, but then I saw the movie Harvey, <laughs> which is about a uh, fellow named Elwood P. Dowd in some city in Ohio, comes out of a bar one night, meets a six-foot-tall white rabbit lounging against the lamppost. And the rabbit says to him, how are you this evening, Mr. Dowd? And in the movie, when Elwood tells this to the psychiatrist, his sister has taken him to the psychiatrist says, weren't you surprised? And Elwood says, no, it's a small town. Everybody knows my name. <laughs> 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 <makes sense>. <laughs> uh, the six-foot-tall white rabbit is, a, is well known in County Kerry. He's called the Puka, uh, which some... Uh, Linguist claims the earliest Indo-European form of the word, which became bog in Russian and god in English, is the, it means the divinity, the divinity. The earliest divinity of Europe was a giant rabbit, according to some theories. This giant rabbit still survives in County Kerry, where in modern Gaelic he's called the Puka. And occasionally some of them wander as far as Ohio, which <laughs> that play. There's a skeptical psychiatric orderly in the play named Wilson, and he looks up puka in the dictionary, and the, dictionary, the definition he finds in the dictionary is puka n, a Celtic elf or vegetation spirit, wise but mischievous, fond of rump pots, crack pots, and how are you tonight, Mr. Wilson? Well, when I saw that on television, I thought, oh my God, I'm, not, I'm like Phil Dick, the television is talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to experimentally take the attitude that what was communicating with me or through me was a six-foot-tall white rabbit from County Kerry. And I found that made as much sense as assuming it was an extraterrestrial or an ancient Chinese philosopher or a medieval Irish bard. So I adopted the six-foot-tall white rabbit from Kerry because there is absolutely no danger that I might take that literally. And I think when you're dealing with these processes, the worst danger is what the Sufis call literalism. Never be literable. Literal. Literal. Oh my God. Ovular. There's an ovular shape on the floor. There is no such word as ovular. He denies that there's such a word as ovular. Put that in the book. You recognize that? That's from Weston Wells' version of the trial. Uh... uh if you don't like the six-foot-tall white rabbit from County Kerry, you can call it the left, the, the right hemisphere of the brain. Or you can call it the collective unconscious. Anyway, the, uh, whether I was getting messages from Sirius or from my own unconscious or the collective unconscious, or what lies even deeper than the collective unconscious, according to Jung, the psychoid level, which is the same in all animals, not just in humans, and it's also the same in inanimate matter as it is in animate matter, and it has the quantum characteristic of non-locality. 
So it, it includes all space and all time, which explains why you often get precognition on this level, uh, which is why Jung calls synchronicity. One student of Jung tells about a time at the Jung Institute when they were having one of these incredible coincidences after another. The student said to Jung, I can't understand all this. And Jung said, it's just synchronicity. And then the next day there was more of it. The student said, how can, how can this synchronicity keep on happening like this? Jung said, okay, it's demons. It's the non-local level of mind as described by the great quantum physicist Evan Harris Walker in his paper, The Complete Quantum Anthropologist. And anybody who can understand the mathematics in Walker's paper, it's a six-foot-tall white rabbit from County Kerry. That you can understand, right? Just don't take it literally. Anyway, uh, there's a church in uh, Stenay, uh, which was uh, one of the capitals of the Merovingian dynasty, which is oriented so that if you stand by the altar and look out the door in the summer, you'll see Sirius framed right in the doorway leading into the church. And uh, the son compares this to the church of Mary Magdalene in Rennes-le-Chateau, in which the 14 stations of the cross have many oddities which have never been explained. For instance, there's a Scotchman in Kills watching the crucifixion. You will not find this in either the Christian Bible or in any of the Gnostic Bibles. You'll also find some people carrying Jesus out of the tomb in the middle of the night, as if he didn't die at all. They were about to fake a resurrection. And it says over the door, this place is terrible. Well, according to, uh, this, this was built by a uh, priest named Father Saunier in the 1890s. Uh, according to the said, uh, the, these 14 stations of the cross contain coded references like Nostradamus that shows that the royal family of France is descended partly from Sirius and possess superhuman powers. And there are hints that we'll have peace in Europe and apparently in the whole world once these superhuman beings are allowed to rule us again after all the mistakes of the last two centuries are undone and all these democratic follies are put aside and we accept these superhuman beings who have come here just to help us. And I say, gee, that, that bullshit sounds familiar. We haven't heard that before. We've been hearing that since the Stone Age about various types who have a desire to rule. Oh, we're not humans like you are. We're descended from the sun god. That's what the, that's what the Aztecs said. That's what the Inca said in Peru. That's what the hero uh, was the last one to claim that. And he was buried. God is dead. Ever since Hirohito was buried, we got no more gods on this planet. He was the last one. Well, no, no, no we still had Rajanish, didn't we? After, after Rajanish was buried, well, suddenly we were left on our own. we got to figure it out for ourselves now. Well, maybe another god will pop up somewhere. 73. When uh, La Rasse Fabulous was published, a Swiss journalist named Matthew Pauli published a book called Undercurrents of Political Ambition. And he got interested in the Priory of Sion because he found their newsletter circuit was being distributed through the lodges of the Grand Loge Alpina, the largest Masonic brotherhood in uh, Switzerland. As a matter of fact, the Grand Loge Alpina contains the bankers uh, who own the banks in Zurich and Basel, uh, who pretty much control European finance. 
And there's as many conspiracy theories about the Grand Loge Alpina over in Europe as there are about the uh, Bohemian Club over here. These are the richest people in Europe, and they belong to the secret Masonic group, the Grand Loge Alpina. Harold Wilson, no relative. He was a prime minister in England back before Thatcher, if anybody can remember the time before <laughs> Thatcher, way back in the dark ages there in the 70s. Harold Wilson called them the Gnomes of Zurich. As far as I know, he was the only one that ever pronounced the G in Gnomes. <laughs> we call them the Gnomes of Zurich. You can find, uh, no matter what any government in Europe tried to do, if the Gnomes of Zurich didn't like it, they'd stop it one way or another. And as a matter of fact, governments don't act. Governments only react. The bankers make the decisions, and then governments decide how we're going to adjust to this. Government can't do anything unless a bank gives them the money to do it. And if the, uh, the bank says, we'll give you this much money for building armaments, the government will build armaments because they can't get any money out of the bankers any other way. If the banks say, we don't want you to build armaments anymore, we want you to build highways, they'll build highways. So people will wonder or worry about who's president, whether it's Bush or Quayle or, or pubic hair or... <laughs> Or anus, or whatever. <laughs> the important thing is who's running the banks. They're the ones who are making the decisions. Anyway, the Grand Loge Alpina was distributing this uh, literature from the Priory of Sion, which said on the inside of the front cover that it was published by the Committee to Secure the Rights and Liberties of Low Cost Housing. <laughs> uh, Matthew Powley, the Swiss journalist, got interested in the Committee to Secure the Rights and Privileges of Low Cost Housing because he detected in the Priory of Science publications that there was something that was not exactly centered on low-cost housing. There seemed to be a strong implication that there were superhuman beings in Europe who were waiting for their turn to take over and solve all of our problems for us. Apparently started investigating, and he found that there was the circuit was not published by the committee to secure the rights and privileges of low-cost housing. It was published out of the office of the Committee of Public Safety of the de Gaulle government in Paris, which was run by André Malraux, great novelist and art historian, and Pierre Plantard de uh, St. Clair, who was uh, related to the St. Clairs of Scotland, who have been connected with Mason since about the 13th century, played a major role in the development of uh, European masonry. And it turns out that Pierre Plantard de Saint-Claire the, was then the Grand Master of the Priory of Sion. Uh, Howley decided that the Priory of Sion was a conspiracy within the de Gaulle government intended to restore monarchy in France and perhaps establish a Europe-wide empire with one emperor at the top, like Napoleon had tried to do. A year after this book was published, Pauli was shot as a spy in Israel. That must be a coincidence. <laughs> a magazine, a French magazine, uh, <coughs> after these three books came out, a French magazine whose name I don't remember, but you can look it up in Holy Blood, Holy Grail, they did their own study of the Priory of Sion, and they just they claimed that Archbishop Lefebvre was the head of this. 
Now, Archbishop Lafrette was the guy who, for about 20 years, was going around denouncing the Vatican, claiming the Vatican had been taken over by Freemasons and Satanists during the reign of Pope John XXIII, and that the Catholic Church was now totally corrupted by Masonic and Satanic influences, and his followers often added to that, he is the man who should be Pope. He never said that himself explicitly, but that's a strong feature in all the propaganda put out by Lefebvre groups. They, they put an ad that I mentioned, uh, this ad that was in the Los Angeles paper. I think I mentioned it uh, earlier today. A couple of weeks ago in the LA Times, there was an ad that said, Jesus and Mary predict huge earthquake for LA. And this ad explained that Los Angeles is going to have a bigger earthquake than you had up here, much bigger. And the only way to survive is by hanging a crucifix on your door, buying a rosary, and getting a copy of the Catholic Bible translated before 1965. That's, uh, that's before Vatican II. Uh, this is a key thing with the Lefebvre people, is that everything since 1965, everything that's come out of the Vatican since 1965 has been the work of Freemasons and Satanists. And Lefebvre is the only one who's maintaining the true Catholic Church. And he got away with this for over 20 years. Last year they abruptly excommunicated him. For years I was wondering, why don't they excommunicate this guy? <laughs> I mean, he's marching up and down Europe, as it were. He's publishing all, he's got all these followers putting out all these hysterical publications announcing the Vatican is run by Satanists. And they, and they just ignore him. Well, after 20 years, they stopped ignoring him, and they excommunicated him, which means that he got more publicity and more followers, naturally. Maybe that's why it took them so long to excommunicate him. He's got a group in Long Island called Our Lady of the Flowers. If you write to them, you will get two rose petals blessed by Jesus Christ himself, and a lot of propaganda about why Jesus wants you to kill homosexuals. <laughs> Jesus is really pissed at the gay men. He's got a real thing. He's off his head on the subject. That's why he's sending the fucking earthquake. <laughs> That's, well, this is what the Lefebvre people believe. One of his disciples... Father Wong Kron, who was, uh, matter of fact, ordained by Lefebvre himself, he tried to shoot the Pope in Fatima a couple of years ago. Bang, 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 and he missed. Uh, well, priests are not trained. Uh, he, said, he said in his trial that, uh, in cross-examination, the uh, prosecutor said, you show no remorse whatsoever, do you feel no sense of guilt? And he said, I have absolutely no guilt about trying to kill the Antichrist. My only guilt is that I committed some sins of the flesh when I was younger. <laughs> He's guilty about that 20 years later. He doesn't mind shooting somebody. In uh, 1981 appeared Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which at last revealed the actual truth. <laughs> the Priory of Zion is a medieval chivalric order devoted to protecting the descendants of the Merovingian dynasty. And the reason they are being protected against the continuous attempts of the Vatican to get rid of them all is not that they are descended from people from Sirius, 
but that they are descended from Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. <laughs> Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a son named Merove who emigrated to France, and the Merovingian dynasty is descended from them. And as a matter of fact, Holy Blood, Holy Grail gives you genealogies of all sorts of people descended from Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene, including Otto von Habsburg. Now, Otto von Habsburg was one of the founders of the Bilderbergers. I trust you for playing, you're paying close attention at this point. It gets a bit hairy around here. Uh, the Bilderbergers, uh, originally sponsored by Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, was also on the charts in Holy Blood, Holy Grail. He's also descended from Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene, if you believe this theory. Prince Bernhard founded the Bilderbergers. Otto von Habsburg has been the chief financier behind it. Otto von Habsburg's grandfather gave several million francs to the priest who built that weird church of Mary Magdalene in Rennes-le-Chateau with the sign over the door saying, this place is terrible. And the brick in the cellar that will let you down to the center of hollow earth, if you believe the other story. Now I have a friend who was over in Rennes-le-Chateau last year, and he found a hollow statue in the church. He was looking around to see how many mysteries he could solve. He found this, this is hollow, by God. None of the other investigators have discovered this. I found something on my own. He managed to get the statue open and unscrewed. And inside were some German newspapers from 1904 that had absolutely no relation to any of this stuff. <laughs> At this point, uh, I'm going to tell you, one of the grand masters of the Priory of Science in the 1960s was uh, Jean Cocteau, uh, who was also one of the founders of the Surrealist Movement, the biggest opium head in France, uh, experimented with peyote also. Uh, he, uh, uh, there's a movie Cocteau made with BBC called Portrait of a Poet, and Cocteau insisted on being in on the editing. He was not, it was not just about him, he wanted it to have his own style. There's a scene in there of Cocteau coming out of his house, and a policeman stops him, asks him a couple of questions, and then lets him walk on. And on the soundtrack, he hear Cocteau's voice saying, the poet must always be a suspicious character. The authorities must always worry what he is hatching. <laughs> That's why they have public schools, remember? Make sure nobody's hatching anything. We're all just repeating like parrots. Um, my beautiful wife, Arlen, uh, has read some of this literature, not as much as I have, but I keep waving these books at her and say, Jesus Christ, look at this. Isn't this fantastic? What do you think about this? And she looked to Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and said, oh, it's obvious. I can see it. 1932, a cellar in Paris. Cocteau, Dali, Andre Breton. <laughs> They're all sitting around smoking opium. And one of them says, you know, surrealism has pretty much had it. People are getting bored. We can't revive Dada. What are we going to do? And Cocteau takes a long toke. <laughs> Let's overthrow the Catholic Church. <laughs> well, that's Arlen's theory. <laughs> but the, the priory of science can be proven to be older than Cocteau. It was back at least to the 1890s and probably couple of centuries before that, maybe back to the 13th century even, like they claimed. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
So, is all that clear now? <laughs> and guess what? There is uh, still about an hour more of this talk that I'll be playing in my next podcast, uh, where uh, Bob begins talking about the mysterious statues of the Black Virgin in several parts of the world. Now, did you catch the uh, part about 15 minutes into this talk when he said that the 90s were going to be like the 60s, or something like that? Well, uh, that shows what an optimist he was, and I think that Timothy Leary was also thinking along those same lines at the beginning of the 90s. But while they were overly optimistic about that date, they nonetheless were right about an era that is going to make the 60s look like the Dark Ages, and it's happening right now. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, uh, a lot happened in the 60s, a lot of good things. But uh, this time, uh, there's a difference, and it's called the World Wide Web, and it's fueled by the mobile communications of people all over the world. Uh, for the first time in human history, I think, we're really beginning to discover what it's going to be like, uh, and probably yet in most of our lifetimes, when everyone who wants to be will be jacked into the net somehow. And as all online humans experienced during the Arab Spring, a group mind is gradually awakening on our lovely little planet. Uh, that big shift that many of us have been talking about in private for years now has actually begun. And, uh, of course, I'm talking about the Global Occupy movement. And so now let's uh, get to the Occupy news update, which I've decided to make a regular feature of these podcasts now. Uh, because I happen to think that we, the entire human family, are at the beginning of a truly psychedelic moment in history. A moment when all bets are off and the collective human mind is beginning to become manifest. Not that it hasn't been doing that for a long time, of course. Uh, for example, the uh, talk that we just heard was recorded in 1990. Yeah, you know, that's about, that's, well, it's over 21 years ago, or is 21 years ago, I guess. And uh, do you remember what Bob Wilson said about the banksters way back then? <laughs> uh, just to be sure, I'm going to play it for you again right now. Uh, so here is Robert Anton Wilson talking about the banks and government back in 1990. And as a matter of fact, governments don't act. Governments only react. The bankers make the decisions, and then governments decide how we're going to adjust to this. Government can't do anything unless a bank gives them the money to do it. And if the, if the bank says, we'll give you this much money for building armaments, the government will build armaments because they can't get any money out of the bankers any other way. If the banks say, we don't want you to build armaments anymore, we want you to build highways, they'll build highways. So people will wonder or worry about who's president, whether it's Bush or Quayle or, or pubic hair or, or anus or whatever. The important thing is who's running the banks. They're the ones who are making the decisions. That actually could have been recorded at one of the recent Occupy events, and uh, yet uh, here Robert Anton Wilson was telling that truth quite clearly over 20 years ago. Now, I hope that by my next podcast I'll be able to report that I have a new website up and going. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm taking these Occupy comments from my weekly podcast and pulling them out where other podcasters, musicians, whoever wants them can uh, get to them a little bit more easily to pull out their own sound bites. Also, you'll be able to leave comments there specifically about the Occupy section of the podcast and we can leave the original notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog uh, for comments about our guest speakers. As I've been mentioning lately, I also set up a new email address uh, specifically for comments about the Occupy movement, 
And for the first one that I'm going to read today uh, comes from a fellow Sloner who seems to intensely dislike uh, not only this new segment, but the entire idea of the movement. I'm not going to reveal his name because I have hope that in a year or so he'll be quite embarrassed about the position he takes in this email. But maybe he's a dyed-in-the-wool Rush Limbaugh Fox News kind of Republican like I was about 30 years ago, so it may take more than just one year to come around. But here's what he had to say. And by the way, the uh, subject of the email was, You are wrong. (laughs) Which, of course, uh, got my attention right away, because I've got uh, quite a long list of things that I've been wrong about in the past, and uh, I was looking forward to adding another item to it. However, uh, after you hear what this person said in his unsigned email, you'll learn that I don't actually consider myself wrong about this. Uh, So, here's the body of that message. I am profoundly disappointed in your apparent approval of the Occupy Wall Street movement, which is a movement towards the destruction of capitalism. Sure, capitalism has its flaws, but by no means is violence, hate speech, and anger going to solve our current economic situation, and it definitely will not propel us towards a higher state of consciousness which you so eloquently preached through your psychedelic salon. Most of the people at these rallies have no idea why they are there, and most of them were sent there by their unions to protest, and they get paid. So let's look at this. People protesting capitalism, but at the same time they are working at a job for the unions and getting paid, which is capitalism, it's like a catch-22, isn't it? These people need to occupy a job and start doing something for society instead of believing in this socialist idea that somehow the government should take money from other people and give it to others. Do you honestly trust your government to do that? Give me a break. I worked hard for my money and it'd be a cold day in hell before I start giving my money to cheap bastards at Occupy Wall Street rallies who take shits on cars, yell hate speech at anyone who has a differing opinion, and oh yeah, destruction without having a plan in order. So, say this movement works, capitalism is gone. What are you going to put in its place? Does anyone have a friggin' plan? Someone does, and that's a plan of enslavement brought to you by this government that keeps growing in size ever since the Democrats got in with Woodrow Wilson. Do some research, Lorenzo. The 99% are out there in the world going to church, donating clothes, food, and time to help people in this tough time we are in. The 99% are not wandering around the streets, sleeping in tents, and shouting a message that they don't even understand. This Occupy Wall Street movement is violence toward a violent goal without any form of order to replace it with. These people are useful idiots creating chaos so that a new order can be born out of it. And you will not have any say in this new world, Lorenzo. Not you, your friends, family. The person with the plan is going to turn your world upside down, and if it finds no need for you, it will throw you away. A higher state of consciousness can only come about through peace and intelligence towards a new paradigm. You can't just destroy the system and have nothing in its place. Seriously, do some research before you start preaching a message to the masses as a perverted spin of the truth. I am disgusted with you, and I have chosen to never download another podcast from you until you get your head straight. (laughs) Well, uh, whoever you are, I hope you feel better after that. Uh, But uh, dear unnamed Saloner, Uh, I guess that you aren't even hearing my response since uh, you've abandoned us here in the salon. And while it would be quite easy to dismantle your arguments piece by piece, 
Your understanding of what the Occupy movement is all about, as uh, as well as a serious underestimate of who all is involved, is, uh, well, it's quite childish and uh, completely misinformed. I don't think you even got a single fact correct. Uh, but the fact is, uh, I simply don't have time to uh, speak to the lies that Fox News and uh, your other sources of misinformation have fed you. And uh, since I know that you're not listening, uh, at least if you're a man of your word and haven't downloaded another podcast, I uh, then feel free to speak my mind and say what I think about your simple-minded email without worrying about hurting your feelings again. But in the interest of time, I'll just assume that you are gone forever. But uh, hey, we still have 99% of us left here in the salon, so uh, let's get on with it. Now let's get back to the uh, real news and uh, ignore these uh, corporate media flacks uh, who simply don't get it. Now I don't know what uh, you were doing last Wednesday night, and uh, that's November 9th, uh, 2011, in case you are somewhere in the future, but for me it was a truly surreal night. What happened was that I was uh, toggling back and forth between uh, the Occupy Oakland General Assembly and uh, the unfolding drama at Occupy Berkeley, along with a demonstration outside Sotheby's Auction House in New York, where demonstrators were shouting shame to the wealthy shoppers who were uh, leaving after an art auction. Then, uh, in the chat room of one of these live streams, someone said that on ESPN there was a huge demonstration at Penn State University going on. Now, since ESPN is a sports station here in the States, uh, it was easy to figure out that that the uh, demonstration at Penn State had nothing to do with Occupy demonstrations that were uh, taking place all over the country at the same time. And for our non-U.S. saloners, uh, here's a summary. The head football coach at Penn State is uh, sort of an institution within an institution. Uh, I guess you could say he's been institutionalized. Uh, But he's had that job for, I guess, over 45 years, and uh, that night he'd just been fired because uh, over many years he'd helped cover up the fact that one of his assistant coaches, at least this is all alleged right now, uh, that he'd allegedly helped cover up the fact that one of his assistant coaches had been sexually molesting some of the young players, uh, or maybe not the players, but young people. So the kids at Penn State, uh, they have a very violent march about uh, this uh, dismissal of their football coach. Uh, They even turned over a television station van and threw rocks at police, things like that. So I turn on the TV and I see that uh, the kids on the East Coast are violently demonstrating about football and the police are doing nothing about it. And then on my live stream video feed, I click over to the Berkeley demonstration and witness the police viciously beating young women and men who are peacefully occupying a space uh, that earlier in the day the university administration told them was theirs to occupy. So what I'm going to do right now is to play a little audio collage of some of what was going on that night at Occupy Oakland. And uh, please keep in mind that what you're about to hear didn't happen in the uh, time frame in which you're hearing it. Uh, The next few minutes are bits and pieces that I pulled out of uh, over six hours of recording that night. But I think that they'll give you a better feel for what was going on in the Occupy movement that you uh, maybe aren't hearing on your evening television news shows. Again, we want to remind everyone who's a part of Occupy Oakland that in the event that this camp is raided, We will meet the following day at the Oakland Public Library on the corner of 14th and Madison. 
um, at 4 p.m. to reconvene. Um, also, I'm sure that you already noticed, but the lights have been turned off. The city did turn the lights on us, turn the lights off on us this evening, and that raises safety concerns. So, as we use this space this evening and in the future, as we as we leave this space tonight, please make sure that you kind of use a buddy system and stay safe. My name is Lauren. I have been teaching Gandhian nonviolence at a local school here in Oakland since Vietnam. This year, two scientists, Chenoweth and Stevens, published Why Civil Resistance Works. What they discovered, what they discovered is that 27% of the revolutions that use violence succeeded, whereas 54% of the revolutions that use nonviolence succeeded. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to say that in this system, a lot of violence is invisibilized by the fact that it's legitimate, like the policing and harassment and the degradation of black and brown communities. Of, uh, in this Oakland, on a daily basis, people put up with violence, and when people have enough of violence and they get angry enough that they want to externalize and say, hey, we're actually being brutalized here too, and they get angry and they break something. I don't think that we should be pointing fingers at people. And I also think that graffiti, why we should not be embarrassed about graffiti. I walk around this world and I see nothing that reflects me. That there's a, a, any presence of myself. There's corporate advertisements everywhere. If people want to draw graffiti and have a visible representation of their existence on this planet in a collective space, I think that that's cool. I'm soundly against this proposal and I speak against it from the position of being soundly in favor of solidarity with all people that we're in struggle with. And when we start passing proposals like this, what we're doing is, is we're trying to exclude people and we need each other here. None of, this wouldn't be here if we weren't here. And once we start pointing the fingers and trying to exclude people for whatever tactics they choose, it's a big mistake and we'll just start splintering. So in, against this proposal, in favor of solidarity. I'm inviting the proposal group to now reread their proposal and we will then directly go to voting on it. We will vote on this proposal the same way that we did the previous. Okay. Originally, we started this proposal as a call for nonviolence in reaction to the destruction and basement of property during the November 2nd general strike. But after some discussion, we found out reality might be a bit more complex than we'd like it to be. This is why. The Occupy movement is an all-inclusive movement. Black Bloc is a tactic for protests and marches, whereby individuals wear black clothing and participate in vandalism or destruction of property, but also in administering first aid to people affected by tear gas and assisting the escape of people arrested by the police. Um, okay, I'm going to skip this part and just get to the proposal. We recognize that we are members of a larger community locally and nationally and internationally. 
We acknowledge that some Occupy Oakland supporters, including the writers of this proposal, are embarrassed and upset about the destruction of property during the November 2nd general strike. We know that our actions affect others and can either strengthen or jeopardize our movement's goals. We understand that there is a time and place for the diversity of tactics of Occupy Oakland supporters, and in hindsight, the November 2nd general strike wasn't the best time or place to employ Black Bloc. We urge individuals employing Black Bloc tactics to please practice appropriate restraint and discipline at peaceful events. We ask individuals using Black Bloc to please refrain from damaging local businesses, especially those that support Occupy Oakland and the Occupy movement in general. We encourage all individuals using peaceful and nonviolent means of protest to continue doing so and to encourage others to do the same. Let us remember that a house divided cannot stand. We cannot let ourselves fall by our own hand or by the hand of the 1%. All of us ought, yeah. Thank you. Hey, we have the vote count. All right, so we have 112 approvals, 599 disapprovals, and 148 stand-asides. That gives us a total count of 859 and an approval rating of 15.8%. This, this, this um, proposal is, um, I guess, tabled for further work. Uh, would the proposal makers like to announce a meeting point for further discussion, or would you just like to move on? Goodbye. Um, what? Uh, yeah, uh, this uh, this conversation should continue. Um, most likely, um, you can all find me online, uh, occupyoakland.org. Check the forums. There's a lot of great discussion there, and uh, yeah. Thank you. And um, Sarah has an update for us. So again, this is a radically inclusive space. Bringing a proposal before the General Assembly takes a lot of courage. It provided a very important conversation tonight, so we want to thank those people. What it also did was allowed us to practice what it means to listen to voices and opinions that aren't in agreement with our own. Yes. And to also respect dissent. Yes. Okay, so the next proposal. And uh, so that is uh, what was going on in Oakland that night as they discussed the ins and outs of what it means to be all-inclusive and yet a nonviolent movement. While at the very same moment, several thousand young, uh, mostly male, college students at Penn State were rioting over the firing of a football coach. But with yet one more click, I switched over to Occupy Berkeley, where earlier that day the police had attacked some peaceful student demonstrators, and now thousands had gathered as rumors of another police attack were uh, running through the crowd. And again, I've shortened uh, an hour or so of actual events into a few minutes just to give you a little idea of uh, what was going on uh, just a few miles from the peaceful Occupy Oakland General Assembly. 
uh, by the school administrator and to uh, stand their ground, which I support and uh, and which I support them on. So that's the latest update. That was uh, GA was I guess held approximately about six o'clock ish. It was their first general assembly. Process was uh, you know they're still learning the process, but I just love to see the movements in their infancy, and uh, I'm here to support UC Berkeley and Occupy Cal uh, by being here and giving the eyes and ears to the world for you guys. So thank you guys for joining us here, and uh, I'll continue to be here and. Uh, uh, I'm guessing it's still going to be another hour and a half. And I see another familiar face. How are you? Good. Occupy San Francisco, right? Yeah. Occupy San Francisco. Yeah. How are you? Good. I've been here since like five. So. Oh, great. So, uh, yeah. do you have an update? Do you need an update? I would love an update. All right. So, I got my I got a global rub in my hand. So. Um, so what happened was, I guess about two or three o'clock-ish or so, their tents, uh, they, they formed an arm lock of tents as the cops came. They beat a bunch of people at, to, to try to get the tents out. By the time I got here, about five o'clock, the cops were gone. People were here, they were getting ready for their general assembly. They had their first general assembly. Process was a little skewed, but they're, they're getting the hang of it. Right. right. Um, uh, one administrator, I guess it's a student body administrator, I don't know exactly who he was, he came and basically told them, for one week, you're allowed to be here 24 hours a day, no sleeping, no food, no tents, but you're allowed to be here, minus those terms. And they all called him bullshit and uh, booed him out of there. And then they took a vote, they got a 93% consensus to defend the encampment, and that's where we're at. Okay. They're gathering, there's at least uh, a dozen or a few dozen cop cars around the corner, uh, UCSF reinforcements, uh, sheriff's reinforcements, two empty buses around the corner. So we're waiting for, I guess, the 10 o'clock ultimatum to tear the tents down. All right. Well, then, um, um, there's the nearest men's room. Thank you very much for the update, and I'll be back. All right, good I got an extra Sharpie. Thank you. Can you ask down there if anyone needs Does anybody need a Sharpie for the Lawyer's Guild number on their arm? You must have it on your arm. You must have it on your arm. You hold this for a second. You got it, you got it. Oh, sorry. Give him a good view. The whole world is watching. Take a second from beating and please call an ambulance. Please, please call an ambulance. Please call an ambulance! We're demanding you call an ambulance! Please call an ambulance! Your first call is the safety of people. Yes, for the safety of people. 
Somebody just got beat the crap out of and you won't you pick up your fucking mic and call an ambulance, you motherfuckers! Because I'm streaming, I have 5,000 people in my hand watching this all around the world. Can somebody please call a, call a, a, a medic for me? Uh, just tell them to come to Spell Hall. There's at least a few people injured. I'm losing my voice. Um, we definitely need a medic down here, so if somebody could please find the number to uh, Berkeley Medics and call them. Uh, they're being treated over here. I know they got pulled off to the side. I, I hope they're getting medical attention. I'm about to lose my voice, so I'll keep you guys rolling. Everybody's chanting now to stop beating students, but, you know, from experience, I know that they've got their orders, and they're just going to do whatever the hell they please. This is fucking ridiculous. I'm sick of watching these people do this to our citizens every day. Would you guys please call an ambulance for the person that you just beat up? Can you please call an ambulance for the person that was just beaten down? Call the medic, thank you. All right, thank you. They're ignoring me over there, and I'm losing my voice trying to call for one. Does somebody need help? Yeah, they were over here a minute ago. I think they were pulled off to the side, but all those people just like look at me with evil grins. I know, it doesn't ever do any good. But it'll eat at their conscience later on. Did somebody I call? I, think, uh, I put a call out. I got, five, I, got, I got hundreds of people watching live And like I just said, I've got several more hours of audio from that night, uh, but there's obviously not time to play it all here. Later on, uh, after the police occupied the steps of the building the demonstrators were in front of, more people joined the occupiers uh, coming from uh, Occupy San Francisco and Occupy Oakland right after their GA adjourned. Now, I know that I've probably said this uh, way too much already, But for me, the contrast between the students in California who were demonstrating about the fact that tuitions have increased over 30% in the last couple of years and uh, that they're being forced uh, by finances uh, to get out of the state's higher educational system. While at the very same time, the students in Pennsylvania were demonstrating over the firing of a football coach. Maybe uh, Timothy Leary was correct when he said that uh, when one flies eastward from California that the consciousness of people goes back a hundred years or more for each time zone you fly through. (laughs) Makes you think, doesn't it? Uh, And uh, my sincere apologies to uh, everyone east of California because I don't really mean that. You know that. I hope. (laughs) I don't want to get any more nasty emails. Uh, Now... uh, Anyhow, uh, I've recorded, uh, I guess, uh, more than 30 hours of interviews and other sound bites uh, over the past week, but obviously I'm not going to be able to uh, play much of that material in this podcast. I do have uh, a few more sound bites that I'm going to play in just a minute, however, but first uh, I'll, uh, I'll just cover the headlines of some of the action that's been taking place lately, because I don't think you're getting it on the regular uh, evening news. To begin with, uh, there have been several cities that have begun to use excessive force to attack nonviolent demonstrators uh, in the past few days. In addition to Berkeley, there was uh, another raid in Oakland at 5 a.m. yesterday, uh, or two days ago now, I guess it was Monday, 
and uh, there was an overwhelming force of, uh, I guess, almost a thousand police officers who were there to remove uh, the 32 occupiers who put up no resistance. <laughs> so uh, let's do the math here. If it took a thousand cops to move 32 demonstrators, then uh, I guess that the reason that the Oakland police or the Portland police backed down on Sunday morning is because there were only a few hundred police, and uh, that night, uh, early in the morning, there were over 5,000 demonstrators. So uh, using the Oakland cop-to-citizen ratio, that means that the Portland cops were, well, they were short by 150,000 troopers or so. Maybe one of the things that the Occupy movement is going to achieve is to bring all of our troops home from the foreign wars we are waging in order to keep peace at home. And uh, since they won't be exposed to any danger from the peaceful protesters, uh, it could be a win-win situation. And uh, if you've been watching uh, the true news on YouTube, Livestream, and Ustream, you've seen that uh, while our local schools have had to cut their arts programs, the local police have been buying all kinds of exotic and very expensive weaponry to subdue their own people. In fact, if you plan on coming to San Diego for the holiday uh, football events, you know, I think it's called the Holiday Bowl or something like that, you uh, may want to be very careful to avoid any of the flash mobs that may come together during that time. Because you see, uh, the San Diego uh, County Sheriff has uh, just put in an emergency order for what they call an array of special impact and tactical gas munitions, including riot control grenades, CS canisters, and liquid ferret, which are uh, essentially bullets that are fired with chemical agents in them. Uh, in other words, the San Diego Sheriff is planning on using chemical warfare tactics against uh, what has so far been only peaceful demonstrations. Uh, so, welcome to sunny San Diego, and uh, as long as you don't exercise your First Amendment rights, uh, well, you'll be fine. By the way, in case you're wondering how the cops are able to justify such expensive military hardware, well, you don't have to look any farther than their war on uh, people who use non-prescription medicines, the so-called war on drugs. That's their main justification for locking us all down in uh, quite an obvious police state that is uh, uh, the gulag America is rapidly becoming. Now, uh, let's hear from a couple of our fellow slaughters who don't seem to be as disgusted with me as the earlier writer. The first one comes from Ken V, who says, Dear Lorenzo, I've been listening to your podcast for about a year or so, and I love it. I'm especially a fan of McKenna, as I'm sure many are. But I am writing to thank you for devoting so much of it to the growing Occupy movement. This, in my humble opinion, is a step in the right direction for the podcast. This Occupy movement is so in line with much of what the podcast has been about, and it is exciting to see these lines converging. Your coverage has been wonderful, and I just wanted to let you know that it really gives each show a real dynamic new edge. Then he goes on to say, I was one of the people arrested on the Brooklyn Bridge over a month ago. I'm going to paste the story I wrote about the experience in case you're interested. I am a professional artist and many consider my work psychedelic. And I've occasionally posted my work on your Facebook page. Thanks for all you're doing. And then uh, he sent uh, a link to the story of his arrest, which is on a public Facebook page. And uh, I'm going to link to it in the program notes here. It's really worth reading. It's quite a long story. Uh, he he uh, it almost accidentally got swept up in this whole thing and wound up being arrested, and it's really an, an amazing story. Uh, I'm just going to read his last, uh, his closing paragraph here, uh, which he says, 
And this is from his Facebook page about the arrest, etc. He says, I want to finish by saying that my night in jail for the Occupy Wall Street movement was exactly what I had to give. And what I mean is that I feel very strongly that I gave the bare minimum to this movement. Many people avoid going down there because they say things to themselves like, well, I can only go for an hour and that won't do anything, so I'll just stay home. This movement never made me feel bad about anything. It didn't make me feel bad when I was afraid of being arrested. They didn't make me feel like a tourist because I showed up two weeks after many others did. They were happy I was there and did not judge me for having limits. My point is, I think so much could be done in this world by people doing the bare minimum. I have always hated bravado and showiness and people who think that they have to work so hard. I think a healthy human being ought to struggle for pleasure and some leisure time, and I sense in this movement a real appreciation of this balance. So I want to assure you that they are not keeping score down there. I have given my bare minimum, and it gave me so much back already. This movement continues in my sharing this story, in my sharing videos, and my hope. I send all my blessings to that great, diverse group of people who are keeping the Occupy Wall Street experiment alive. Thank you for a great night. I will be back for more as soon as I can. Well, thank you for everything, Ken. And uh, by the way, I really like your art, and I'll post a link to both your website and your story about your arrest, uh, which I personally found very fascinating. And uh, I truly hope that uh, every one of our fellow Slaunters reads your story, because if they do, they'll understand how very far from the mark our unnamed and disgusted Slaunter was about what's actually taking place there. And uh, for what it's worth, while there are a lot of us who are supporting the movement in a wide variety of ways, you guys who are on the front lines, you know, quite literally putting your bodies on the line, well, you're all my heroes, and I don't say that lightly. Another uh, heroic fellow Saloner is Revelyn Jay, who uh, is not only an active occupier, he's also a, a supporter and donor to the Salon and is on the front lines in Vancouver. And uh, here's a message that he sent to his family and uh, close friends in which he gives a very clear picture of what is taking place on, you know, on the ground in uh, one of the Occupy sites. He says, Update. Many people have left our camp. More have joined. There's a split because the original reasons that brought 5,000 people to downtown Vancouver on that first day are not the same reasons that compel a hundred or so to continue sleeping and living in a courtyard surrounded by sky-high centers of finance and commerce. The camp has become a symbol for homelessness, apathy, and desperation for people watching it from the outside, mostly on TV. For us who live within, it is hope, progress, a place to get food, attention, care, to rest, to sleep, and to be surrounded by people who love you and who are looking out for you. Some of us want to take our dome building project, of which we have built six so far, out to the empty lots around the city. After preparing the materials, we are able to put up a geodesic dome frame in 20 minutes, covered in tarps in under an hour, and provide a structure to house six to ten people in a communal fashion, sharing their life and body heat with each other. It's going to be a cold winter, and we might have found a way that everyone can get through it comfortably. We would also set up kitchens like our own, Food Not Bombs kitchen, which is now serving around 900 meals a day to both campers and passers-by. 
Now we just have to convince the city government and the mostly uninformed populace of Vancouver to support us in providing this kind of safe, low-cost communal housing. How is the Occupy in your city going? I know some have been shut down and some, like us, are just on the verge of city police rushing in and attempting to scatter us to the wind. Are you visiting your camp often, speaking to people, becoming familiar with what they want, what they need? I'm working in a donations tent and blankets, socks, and gloves are by far the most requested items that we usually run out of very quickly. Have you taken part in a political discussion, specifically with one person or another, something small, something personal? These kind of talks keep me coming back day after day, each time learning a little bit more about what democracy actually means. A demonstrating body, an action of the people, by the people, mass consideration composed of individually directed minds. If you're not having a personal discussion with your neighbors about the conditions we live in, the problems we see around us, and how we're going to get cracking solving them every day, then it's not democracy, and we're not free, nor are we taking responsibility for our own lives, regardless of the form of government. I hope everyone gets a chance to exercise their right to live and let live. And uh, that, I believe, is the true essence of the Occupy movement. Uh, let me read Revlin's last line again. He says, I hope everyone gets a chance to exercise their right to live and let live. It's really as simple as that. Uh, all we have to do is uh, work out a few details, huh? Which, of course, is uh, going to take uh, a decade or more, but at least the Freedom Train has at long last left the station. Now, the final Occupy story I want to cover this week is the one from Portland, Oregon, this past weekend. As you know, uh, after five very difficult weeks of encampment in Portland, the original camping site has been uh, swept clean by the police, and now the lovely city of Portland has its nice downtown parks surrounded by fences and are off-limits to the citizens. Uh, to me, uh, downtown Portland now looks like they're, uh, well, they've kind of built a new kind of zoo where they keep fences around the grass and trees as if they were too dangerous for people to get near. Uh, really quite foolish, if you ask me. Anyhow, uh, on Sunday night, after the last few hundred people were forced out of the downtown parks, they simply regrouped and began discussing where they were going to move to for their new encampment. You know, it's really quite humorous, as uh, long as you uh, aren't the one getting clubbed by a cop, because uh, it's very much like that uh, carnival game called Whack-A-Mole. And if you've ever played that game, you know that the moles always win. So, Occupy Portland hasn't caved, as uh, some in the chat room were saying. They simply are regrouping. And uh, here is uh, where some of the experienced people from the 60s came in handy, because one of the big lessons learned in the 60s is that you should never go up against a dumb guy who has a gun. And uh, that is where the Portland demonstrators shone like stars. Uh, they pushed the police right up to the limit. And then, uh, after hours of a Sunday afternoon standoff, they let the cops go home and rest for a bit, which I thought was very considerate of the demonstrators. So now, uh, rather than just me telling you about what went down in Portland, I'm going to play a little audio collage from some of the recordings of the live streams that I made from Occupy Portland uh, events that, over the weekend. And what you're about to hear is just a few minutes that have been extracted from over 16 hours of recordings that I did over a two-day period. So as you listen to it, uh, please keep in mind that there's actually, oh, 30 minutes to an hour sometimes between some of these uh, speakers, and uh, even more in some cases. 
if this were a video, you would uh, be seeing it in fast forward. So I'm going to take you from the General Assembly conversations around 9 p.m. Uh, Saturday night, uh, then to around 2.30 a.m., by which time uh, there were literally thousands and thousands of people who showed up to support the occupiers. And uh, reports vary, but reliable estimates uh, range between five and 8,000 people. And that's a truly huge crowd to turn out late at night with no previous notice or planning. Uh, and eventually the police realized that uh, <laughs> there were just too many people there to do anything about it. And so during the night, the cops backed down. But uh, the next day was a standoff that lasted till around 7 or 8 at night, at uh, which time the demonstrators uh, held a, a, a general assembly, uh, voted, left the immediate area after uh, first making some plans on uh, when and where to meet the next day. And as I said, it's uh, like a game of whack-a-mole. And these aggressive police forces are going to soon learn that by continuing to send a military-sized troop to arrest six people that, well, they're going to run out of money, among other things. And uh, the people of Portland have proven beyond any doubt that the Occupy movement is going to be a fact of life for the indefinite future. So you might as well get used to it, or better yet, get involved. Uh, now, uh, here's a fast-forward version of what went down in Portland over the weekend. And I should add that the uh, mayor of Oakland has confirmed that she coordinated her attacks on demonstrators with the mayors of 18 other cities over the weekend and uh, in right in through today. And uh, that's why there have been so many police crackdowns this weekend. You know, it looks like the one percenters are starting to get worried and are trying to figure out how to subdue 300 million people with uh, only about one million cops. <laughs> it's going to be a tricky whack-a-mole problem, isn't it? Anyway, here are uh, some sound bites from Occupy Portland over the weekend. Hi, everyone. Our group overwhelmingly brought forth constructive, nonviolent approaches for Saturday. Um, in particular, doing outreach to the community, the rest of the 99%, to join us at an event on Saturday to increase our numbers in a show of solidarity and also so we can continue the discussion we've been having for five weeks. Uh, the various ways that could be produced would be through a potluck, a job fair, any sort of community event, and, out, and asking people also if they're unable to attend to do a public demonstration in their communities at a similar time. Uh, we also would like to address and create a political statement specific to Saturday that addresses Sam Adams' concerns about crime and poverty and the ways in which arresting people is not a constructive way to deal with those issues. Hello. Our group is over there, and I don't think we had anything new to add to this list. I think there's a lot of consensus going on. But the first thing in regards to the tone, I think we decided in consensus that we really want a celebratory feel because it'll be a moment of truth and for far too long the media has had a control of our narrative they've been telling the public who we are what we're about and I think our group decided that this will be a day for us to take that back it'll be an opportunity so ideas about anything related to celebratory nature that can set a positive tone not just nonviolence, but beyond nonviolence, right? The fact that it's not a stagnant process, so activity, right? The idea that we're moving and we're a community and making it as friendly to the community and making it as large as possible would be really helpful in this process and setting the tone for that narrative. 
there. Uh, so our group talked about a lot of things that have already been covered, so I'm not going to recover those, but the one that I haven't seen so far that we talked about extensively um, was to be prepared, and that means taking personal responsibility to have um, things that you might need on that night, like first aid supplies, like goggles, like a handkerchief, um, like vin uh, apple cider vinegar, um, things that will protect you, um, a helmet, um, things that will protect you against chemical agents and um, just to stay safe and to help your friends and, and partners and everybody else here stay safe as well. So just taking personal responsibility and um, having some first aid supplies and things on hand. Um, we've been in this park for a long time. We live like a tribal community. And way back in the day, tribal communities were nomadic. And there was a good reason they were nomadic so that they didn't do damage to the environment. The longer that people stay in this park, the more damage will be done to the park. But that doesn't mean that if we move or go somewhere else, that we've disbanded or that we've stopped doing what we're doing. And if for any reason we can't hold the park and can't be in it, I, for one, highly suggest, since it's so close and everybody's already talked about it so much, that at least one of those splinter groups takes the waterfront. So we have the idea of one of the splinter groups taking the waterfront, waterfront park. How do people feel about that? And was there another idea that I, was that the main one? Okay, great. So last uh, report back. I know there's one more after that. It is 2.30 in the morning. Well, no, technically the park is not going to reopen until they decide it will reopen. So the crowd on the other side is Yeah, it has thinned That's out a, a lot. So technically, even if we last until the, the time the park opens in the morning, the park will be open in the morning. So I want to stress, well, no, I want to state my gratitude to the people of Portland for showing up in mass numbers, the people of Seattle, the people of Oakland, the people from whoever, wherever they came from. Thank you so much. This is what we needed tonight, and you showed up. Portland definitely showed up tonight. And then some. And then some. So for those of you who haven't uh, been here this whole time, we actually had uh, five mounted cops trying to push back our line up Main Street, uh, west up Main Street towards the Elk Fountain. Uh, they were unsuccessful. We then uh, occupied the intersection of 3rd and Main and then pushed, pushed the police all the way back down to Madison. Do a shout out to the police because they put they could have. Yeah, actually, us. I big shout out to the police. The police uh, have shown a lot of restraint as well today, and that's good. We, all sides should be showing a lot of restraint because we are all part of the 99 percent, and they are getting their orders from people who aren't. Mainstream media snaking through the crowd. Please report on us fairly. Please tell everyone how peaceful this protest has been. I don't think it was coined. Slithering Stay here, do your job! Don't off your riot suit, you're sexy, you're cute. Take off your riot suit, you're sexy. Take off your riot suit, you're sexy. This is the Portland Police Bureau. Under authority of Oregon law, Southwest Main Street is being reopened to vehicular traffic. 
you must immediately vacate the roadway and proceed to the sidewalk. If you remain in the roadway and show the intent to engage in physical resistance to removal, or if emergency circumstances require, you may be subject to the use of force, including chemical agents and impact weapons. If you remain in the roadway, you may be subject to arrest for disorderly conduct and other state and city offenses. Please move to the west on the sidewalk immediately. Thank you. I could actually go on for hours uh, just about the Portland occupation, but last night, and right now it's Tuesday, and so last night as I was finishing the editing of the Portland action, and uh, just before I was going to go to bed, I did a quick check of the live video feeds and discovered that the New York police had just begun a raid on Liberty Square in New York City. And uh, they were beginning to evict the occupiers, uh, arresting many of them, and uh, destroying the personal possessions of the entire camp. You know, the uh, cops in some instances wouldn't even let occupiers who were peacefully trying to leave the park take any of their personal items out. And uh, so hundreds of cell phones, laptops, cameras, and the library of over 5,000 books were all thrown into trash bins and hauled off to a landfill somewhere. Now, my intention this morning was to include some of the New York action from last night, but it's still very much underway. And uh, so in order to get this podcast out and not uh, uh, have it any longer than it already is, I've decided to cover the current New York action in my next podcast, which I'll uh, have begun working on by the time you're hearing this. But as I'm sure you already know, the occupiers in uh, Occupy Wall Street in New York uh, did lose their court case, and so their occupation has been uh, modified, and the New York police are now occupying the park for them. Uh, I guess they're waiting for another mole to pop up. Uh, And you can bet your last dollar that it won't be long before that happens. Uh, In fact, uh, just as the court ruling came in this evening, the students at Berkeley had picked up the baton, and the live stream action shifted to the West Coast for a bit. But there is one last thing that I want to mention, and it's a a feel-good moment. And it's about someone who I'm thinking of as last week's Hero of the Week. Uh, And there were literally thousands of them, uh, thousands of people to choose from. But my vote goes to Makana, a young singer from Hawaii. And by now I'm sure that you've already heard about him. Uh, However, his story uh, bears repeating once more. Last Saturday night, there was a private dinner held in Hawaii for the heads of state of of the uh, 20 or so nations who make up APAC, the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation League or something like that. So picture a small room with only four big round tables in it, uh, and to have a seat at one of those tables, you had to either be a politically, the actual leader of a country or their spouse. So now at those tables, uh, picture this, it's uh, Obama and his wife, uh, and also the leaders and their wives or husbands of Canada, Australia, Indonesia, Japan, Mexico, Chile, and more than a dozen other countries. And they're all having a quiet little dinner, and they are being entertained by a a young man who played for an hour and a half before he opened up his jacket to reveal a t-shirt that read, Occupy with Aloha. (laughs) And then he began to sing a song that he wrote, and it's titled, We Are the Many. And some of the lyrics included, Ye come here, gather round the stage. The time for, has come for us to voice our rage. And other lyrics included, We'll occupy the streets, we'll occupy the courts, we'll occupy the offices of you, 
till you do the bidding of the many, not the few. And he sang it over and over and over for 45 minutes. Now, uh, <laughs> I'm going to play a two-minute clip of him telling how it went down. And then I'll uh, follow that with a studio version of the song. However, it'll really be worth your time to watch that first video, which I'll link to in the program notes for this podcast, which you know you can find via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, in that video, you can see these world leaders in the background, uh, at least one of whom seems to be saying, What the fuck is he singing? So uh, <laughs> it's a classic. You really ought to see it. Anyway, let's, uh, let's now hear the audio from that, uh, that little short video where... The person I now call Manica the Mighty, uh, as he personally occupied a world leader's private dinner, uh, and then gets right in their faces without even being arrested or even escorted out of the room. It's truly a remarkable moment. So I just came from playing the world leader's dinner at APEC uh, here in Honolulu for uh, the Obamas and, I guess, 19 or 20 other world leaders. So I showed up and did my gig and I started to look around and I thought about the song I just wrote called We Are The Many. And it was an incredible experience to sing the words, those words, to that room of people. I didn't belt it out. I started out very subtly and subliminally, and I was like, Ye come here, gather round the stage. Time has come for us to voice our rage. Did he just say what I think he said? And then I realized that, wow, I didn't get in trouble. So I played it again, and I made like a different version of it. I ended up playing it for about 45 minutes. To be able to sing that there was an epic feeling. It felt right. My uncle always told me, play what's in your heart and play to the audience, you know, play what you feel is right for them. That's what I did. And I found it odd that I was afraid to do it at first. I found that disturbing. That's kind of why I did it. But I didn't like the idea of being afraid to sing a song that I created. I've never in my life been afraid to sing anything. If that's what we've come to in the world where... We're afraid to say certain things in the company of certain people. I think that's a dangerous place to be. And so, for me to move out of that space, I had to sing the song. And that's what I did. Come here and gather round the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do not at liberty, the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged, we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you 
till you do the bidding of the many, not the few. Our nation was built upon the right of every person to improve their plight. The laws of this republic they rewrite, and now a few own everything in sight. They own it free of liability. They own, but they are not like you and me. Their influence dictates legality, and until they are stopped, we are not free. We'll occupy the streets. We'll occupy the courts. We'll occupy the offices. The The bidding of the many, not the few. You enforce your monopolies with guns, while sacrificing our daughters and sons. But certain things belong to everyone. Your fury has left the people none. So take heed of our notice to redress. We had little to lose. We must confess. Your empty words do leave us unimpressed. A growing number join us in protest. We occupy the streets. We occupy the courts. We occupy the offices of you till you do the bidding of the many, not the few. You can't divide us into sides. And from our gaze, you cannot hide. Denial serves to amplify, and our allegiance you can't buy. Our government is not for sale. The banks do not deserve a bail. We will not reward those who fail. We will not move till we prevail. We'll occupy the streets. We'll occupy the courts. We'll occupy the offices of you till you do the bidding of the many, not the few. We'll occupy the streets. We'll occupy the courts. We'll occupy the offices of you till you do the 
bidding of the many, not the few. We are the many, you are the few. I think that Makana may have come up with a good anthem for the movement, which goes very nicely with the anonymous chant of, We are legion. We do not forget. We do not forgive. Expect us. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>